I learned something new this past week, and I want to see if your trivia knowledge bank contains this little nugget. In all of your trivia bravado, though, I encourage you not to just shout out an answer or something, because this one is a little bit tricky. How many presidents have we had in these United States of America? You got your number locked in? President Obama is number 44. You may think that that's the number, but there are actually only 43 unique individuals who have held this office. And the reason is that Grover Cleveland is counted twice. He had two terms in different time periods. So we have 44 presidencies, but only 43 persons by 2015. But things even are a little bit more tricky than that. It might need to be 45 presidencies. Some of you who are history buffs may be aware of a debate about David Rice Acheson. Due to a fluke in inauguration scheduling, the baton passed from James Knox Polk, number 11, to Zachary Taylor, number 12, was delayed by 24 hours. And as the leader of the Senate, Acheson stood in line to inherit the president from the, B from the VP. So in March 1849, when the then POTUS and V POTUS evacuated their offices, the inauguration ceremony was delayed this 24 hours, and Acheson was in charge. Or at least that's what he claims. American history experts dispute that claim because they say that Atchison wasn't actually in his office at that time. That 24-hour delay moved him out of his office as well. But that didn't stop him from claiming that his so-called presidency was, and I quote, the honestest administration this country ever had. <laughs> of course it was. President for a day, and Acheson thinks he did it better than all those other guys. Now, this historical faux pas just raised an interesting question for me. You know, what would it be like to be president for a day? How would I run the country? How would you run the country? Yeah, I'm sure we have lots of ideas about ways that we would do it better, from economics to foreign policy to legislation to national security, healthcare, education, you name it, we've got a better way of running the show in mind. And we've probably thought, maybe even some of us have said, all that we need is X or Y or Z, and that would solve everything. We take the incredibly complex and we reduce it to the extremely simple and we assure ourselves that we'd be all over it. Now, how would it be not just running one country, but two or three, maybe even the entire world? Wouldn't it be great to be God for a day? Ah, then we could really fix some things. Job likes that idea. It's time, in his opinion, for some changes on the world's org chart, and he's just the guy to implement them. Job seeks to conduct a performance review for God, but when God comes on the, th on the scene, the story takes a drastic turn. This is the fourth and final message in our series, When Life Hits the Fan. Over the past four weeks, we've been considering the book of Job, this Old Testament book. We've been working our way through it. And as you might have heard last week, this isn't my first run through the book of Job in this last year. I launched into my graduate school schedule this last fall with a course on the book of Job. And there were a couple of big takeaways from that class. One of them I'll make sure to share with you a little bit later. But for now, as we get started, I just want you to know that I came to truly appreciate this book. And that wasn't always the case. 
I've always found the book of Job to be a hard book because the author expects us to be able to sustain our attention over a long period of chapters, zeroing in eventually on a solution. And it's a pretty demanding book. The author asks us to be able to sort through what is good teaching about God and what isn't good teaching about God. So maybe as bad as it sounds, I I walked into my class on Job feeling a little bit cold toward the book. And then I learned that this class was being presented in a seminar style, which just means that there's a professor and a handful of students, and the key word here is handful. There were only seven of us in the class, which meant that I wouldn't be able to hide in the back of the room. The purpose of this course was to get to know the book of Job, but to do so in its original language of Hebrew. Now, you have to believe me when I say this. I promise you, I'm just not very good at Hebrew. I'm not being modest. I can barely get by. And so when my professor started his introduction to the course, I could feel nervousness welling up inside my stomach because he said, the Hebrew of the book of Job is the hardest in the entire Bible. Sweet. The next week, seven went to three. Now, in spite of my struggles with the book, or maybe even more in light of those struggles with the book, along with the suffering that my wife and I were experiencing as we were reading this book and studying this book of Job, God showed up in a fresh way. I got to know him in a new way reading the book of Job. I hope that's been your experience over the last several weeks. I want to recap where we've been to set the context for where we're going So in the first message, Pastor Jim reflected on the question that many of us ask when we're undergoing suffering. Why me? We learned that we need to shift our expectations. We will suffer. We have an enemy, and God graciously produces maturity through the crucible of suffering. Then in week two, we detailed the best but failed efforts of Job's friends to bring coherence to the dissonance created by Job's suffering. And by way of contrast, we each learned how we can be a good friend, an empathetic friend to those who are suffering. And then last week, we were privy to Elihu's defense of God. He called four of Job's accusations against God into question. And as he did so, he reminded Job of the greatness of God. Now that takes us to our chapters for today, and it's crucial as we jump into them that we understand how these chapters function for the author of the book. The theme of God's greatness is continued, but with a significant variation. For Elihu, God's greatness was a strong weapon to put Job in his place. For God, displaying his greatness in his speeches does put Job in his place, but more importantly, these speeches serve as an invitation for Job to trust him. You see, Elihu wants to put Job in his place negatively, take him down a couple of notches. God wants to put Job in a place of deep-seated trust. And I encourage you to keep that distinction in mind as we go, because as we'll see in just a minute, these chapters can feel a little harsh. What we get in the conclusion of Job can feel like cold comfort. In fact, reflecting on these chapters and their emphasis on God's act of creation, the playwright George Bernard Shaw had this to say, If I complain that I'm suffering unjustly, it's no answer to say, Can you make a hippopotamus? Tongue-in-cheek, making fun of God's approach in these chapters. 
Now, that clever response on Shaw's part betrays a lack of understanding about God's words in these chapters of Job. I hope that we'll come to recognize the depth to which this book's solution is meant to go. In one sense, it would be really easy for God to give Job quick comfort, to give in to all of his demands, but God's response is designed to to provide lasting, deep comfort that brings about transformation. It's the kind of comfort that we get when we see God as he is. These chapters are meant to give us a view of God and then to encourage us to adopt that view of God in his way of running the world. It's been said that the the most important thing about you is what you think about God, and that's true for life in general. It's even more true when we're suffering. What you think about God is the most important thing about you when life hits the fan. So the question that we're trying to answer today is, how should we think about God when we're suffering? And the book of Job gives us three attributes. Attribute number one, God is wise. Now, I've spent a bunch of time setting us up for the conclusion of the book, but you observant people have probably noticed as you looked at your outline that we're starting in chapter 28. Find your way to chapter 28 in your Bible if you have one, and you'll find out why. The theme of chapter 28 is linked with the concluding chapters of the book. We're meant to see them in light of each other. So as you're getting to Job chapter 28 and your weekly welcome outline, I want to summarize the first section of this chapter. The first 11 verses employ the image of mining underground for precious metals. You can see that just glancing down the chapter in your Bible. The various word pictures used illustrate what's been happening during the previous 27 chapters of the book of Job. Job and all of his friends have been mining the depths of life in order to understand why he's suffering. Then in verses 12 through 19... There is a simple but very important point made for the book as a whole. The human search for wisdom, the thing that Job and his friends have been doing for 27 chapters, trying to make sense out of his life, the human search for wisdom doesn't work like mining for gold. You can't find wisdom. You can't buy wisdom. And that brings us to the verses I want to park on for a few minutes, verses 20 through 28. Follow along as I read. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. That is, from one end of the heavens to the other, no one knows how to find wisdom. In contrast, verse 23, God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it, and he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. If you've been reading through the book of Job with us over the past several weeks, then you might have noticed a shift in tone when you came to chapter 28. 
Every other chapter in the book is intense. It's super focused on Job's suffering and the potential reasons for it. But when we hit chapter 28, something is very different. This chapter feels disconnected from the emotional angst of the book as a whole. And when we notice a significant shift in tone like this, when we're reading our Bibles, we should be asking ourselves, what is the purpose of this chapter? What is it doing here in the middle of this book, and what is it doing to move the story forward at all? Well, thankfully, the, tr the editors of the NIV translation have helped us out. You'll notice that over the chapter 28, there is a title that says, Interlude, Where Wisdom is Found. You know, the decision to title it this way is really helpful for us because we understand something about how an interlude is supposed to work, but we also get the help of hearing that this chapter, the theme, is all about wisdom. You know, an interlude is an intermission. It's a break from the main action. Several weeks ago, we were in the prologue. That's where the story gets moving, the action gets moving. Pretty soon, we're going to be in the prologue where all the threads are pulled together. But right now, we're in the interlude, a moment for us to catch our breath. And this interlude in particular, chapter 28, gives us a moment to draw conclusions about what has transpired so far in the story. The narrator provides an authoritative judgment about what's just gone on. Chapter 20 28 is meant to draw a sharp contrast between the responses of Job's friend in the first part of the book and what's coming in the second part. His point, the narrator's point, is to say what they said and how they said it will not do. But this interlude doesn't just look back. This interlude actually points forward as well. It provides a preview of coming attractions as we move into chapters 29 through 42. The major emphasis of 28, we've just seen it, is wisdom. And that's the key. That's the key for solving the problem that this book has presented to us. You really, you really can't miss this. You have to see that the narrator is pausing the story, the unfolding of the story. What's gone on, he comments on. What's coming, he gives us the solution to, so we have an inside track. This would be very similar to hearing that your favorite team won a game before you got to watch it on TiVo. You know that they won while you're watching the game. So you can sit back and relax. You watch all of the things unfold. They're losing for a long period of time, but you know they're going to win. There are injuries, but you know they're going to win. There's tension between teammates, but you know that they're going to win. You have an inside track to the end of the story. That's what this chapter does. The narrator puts a wisdom framework in place for us. He's saying this is the right frame of mind for thinking about suffering. And that means that we shouldn't talk about suffering by having a conversation about God's justice. We should talk about suffering by having a conversation about God's wisdom. Now, I want to flesh this out, explain this a little bit with a story. One of the reasons that I'm excited to do college ministry again at Christ Community Church is because I love the kinds of discussions that college students have about God and about faith. This last fall, I was talking to a college girl who had a really great list of questions, the most pressing of which had to do with suffering, her own suffering and the suffering of other people in her life, and she wanted to know if God was fair. 
And so this conversation was unfolding. It was many hours long that we were talking about this, but became very clear very quickly into the conversation that she was operating with a certain idea of fairness. And not surprisingly, it sounded very similar to what we've been finding in the book of Job. She thought that righteous people should prosper and that wicked people should suffer, but not the other way around. Ultimately, she was questioning God's way of running the world. And so what I tried to explain to her was that justice isn't the foundation upon which God runs the world. Because if it was, then that simple principle, the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer, would have to be true for every single individual person's life experience. And since it's not, there must be some other foundation from which God operates in his world. God operates according to wisdom. He runs his world wisely. After a couple of hours of going over the same ground again and again, this difference started to sink in, and she was able to see the issue of suffering from a slightly different angle. You see, all of the conversations, all of the discussions that we've seen in the book of Job up through chapter 28 all assume that the right framework for thinking about suffering is justice. Represented by that simple formula, righteous prosper, wicked suffer. But chapter 28 turns that all on its head and says the right framework is wisdom. These verses in chapter 28 that we read a moment ago affirm that God is wise, and that's the chief attribute he uses in running his world. Look again at verses 23 to 24. God understands the way to it, referring to wisdom, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. This gets at the heart of the problem with using justice to evaluate suffering. I want you to follow this. In order to know if suffering is just or unjust, we have to have access to all the data. But one of the big differences between human beings and God is that human beings don't have access to all the data. Only God has all of the information. And so he's running the world wisely in light of it. And that means that whatever we make of suffering, we have to understand that it connects into God's wise operating of the world. Now this might strike you as unreasonable. It might seem like an intellectual form of suicide. It might look like blind faith, or it could, again, just look like seriously cold comfort. But instead, it's none of those. This is what the author of the book of Job wants us to pick up. He explicitly says this is the proper framework for understanding suffering from God's perspective. Take a look again at verse 28, the concluding verse. It says, And he, referring to God, said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. You know, the book of Job is not meant to provide answers or reasons for our suffering. That's the justice bucket. The book of Job is designed to produce a right disposition in us as we suffer. And the way that chapter 28 summarizes that right disposition is by calling it the fear of the Lord. 
Now, this phrase, the fear of the Lord, is very typical of a wisdom book, and that's what Job is. It's found in a collection of Old Testament books called the Wisdom Writings. Job is classified as a wisdom book because it puts forward a life of wisdom as the good life, a life characterized by the fear of the Lord. This is a notion that we should all be somewhat familiar with because we did an entire series on the fear of the Lord this past fall. So I just will make one brief comment about it, and that's this. The fear of the Lord is a disposition before God that respects him cognitively while also bowing reverently in submission to his wisely ordered creation. Now, we learn from the beginning of the book that Job has the first of these. Namely, Job has a cognitive respect for God. But we've seen throughout the book as it's progressed that rather than humbly acknowledging that God runs the world wisely, Job has questioned God's ability to run the world well at all. Job wants to be God for a day. Which means that Job doesn't have the second side of the fear of the Lord yet. Before we move on to see when God comes on the scene, I just want to pause for a moment for a bit of a heart check. A moment for you to catch your breath. We as human beings typically don't do well with humble submission to God. Period, but especially when we're suffering emotionally or physically. If we're in the midst of some disease, or we've lost someone we've loved, or we've been abused, or we have financial pressures, or relationship fractures, or sleeplessness, or uncertainty about the future, or major life changes, we're not prone to trust God's way of running the world or of running our lives. Because in these moments of extreme suffering, we don't get answers to our questions or our specific scenarios. We don't get a works-every-time formula for making sense of all of it. We don't get an escape hatch. What we get, if we'll humbly receive it, is God himself and the assurance that he is, in fact, running the world wisely. The question is, will we receive it? In hard moments of suffering, it's easier to kick and scream and make demands and want answers. But God says, I want you to trust me. You might be more comfortable with a nice, neat, and clean answer to your suffering. Reasons for why this is happening. But I want you to trust me. You might want to operate on your own perception of justice and fairness but I invite you to trust my way of running the world and your life is better. I'm wise. I care about you deeply and I invite you to trust me. You know, right here in the middle of the book of Job, this simple but profound way of enduring suffering is offered and then it's supported way later, 38 through 42 in the book, by God's speeches. And there we find two more attributes of God that fill in in some detail the fact that God is wise. So here's attribute number two. God is skilled. I love to watch people do things really well. This past week I was supposed to be watching my daughter. And instead I was watching a tree cutter down guy do his thing outside. 
My in-laws had to have a tree removed from their property, but it happened to be on the city's piece of the property, so they sent out a contracted crew. I thought these guys were going to be total hacks at their job, but they were really good, and it was a beautiful thing to watch this unfold. This dude in his bucket attached to the lift was amazing, moving back and forth here one moment, there the next moment, wielding his chainsaw like Thor's hammer, a thing of beauty. I'm watching this totally captivated, my daughter Charlotte a little less so. She liked it until she started to hear the branch eater. It was very, very scary and loud, and so she departed, and I kept watching, and she kept interrupting me, wanting to play, change dirty diapers, all this nonsense. I was captivated because these guys were so good, and I just kept thinking, I just picked the wrong job. People who are really good at what they do make you want to do it, make you respect it. God's speeches in the final chapters of Job are meant to move us from suspicious critics to awed observers in the light of God's skill of running the world. He's incredible at this. When life hits the fan and God shows up, it's better than any 4th of July display of fireworks. It's better because Job gets exactly what he needs. And it's beautiful. These chapters, 38 through 42, are one big dialogue broken up into four parts. God speaks, Job responds. God speaks, Job responds. And the interesting thing to note is the progression as the dialogue goes on. God moves from big picture to small picture. Job moves from silence to repentance. Follow along, chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. We've been waiting for this moment the whole story through. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Oh, there are a number of things worth commenting on in these verses, but I want to start with the storm. Yeah, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that God showing up in a storm is probably not a good thing. In fact, most times when God shows up in the Old Testament in this fashion, it's a demonstration of his wrath. So what's God's beef with Job? We know from the first chapters of the book that God thinks highly of Job and that no one's been able to prove Job wrong. Job isn't motivated by his desire to get benefits from God. He's not righteous because he gets anything out of it. He's just righteous. There's no question Job is innocent. He's not suffering because of anything he's done wrong. So what's the deal with the storm? Well, God is angry because of Job's presumption and arrogance. He's not spoken rightly about God. And God's initial question in verse 2 of 38 confirms this. He says that Job's words without knowledge are calling into question God's plans. This is an important word. It stands in for God's ways of ruling the world. Job is sticking his nose in God's business, assuming that he knows how to run the world better than God does. If he was running the world, the righteous wouldn't be suffering. Well, in the face of this prideful challenge to God's policies, God turns the tables on Job. Job's asked a ton of thorny questions throughout the book, and now it's God's turn to ask the questions. But remember, these questions aren't meant to crush Job. These questions are meant to expose the real needs in his life after it's hit the fan. 
So God's rhetorical questions come in three categories in these chapters. He starts with operations of the world at large, and then he moves to the animal world, and then he moves to these very strange creatures, these two kind of weird things. In verses 4 through 38 of chapter 38, God expresses his skilled control of the world as the whole. This is the first category. I'm going to read a number of verses to you. I'm not putting them up on the screen so that you can hear the bold and poetic quality of God's speech. God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years, God says. Five times in these handful of verses, God blends his precise execution of his job description with a challenge to Job's presumption. Job has, on the one hand, overestimated his ability to form a consistent and coherent philosophy of running the world. And on the other hand, he's underestimated the sheer complexity of running the world, which means, in short, that God is a skilled world runner and Job isn't. The other two categories make this same point in slightly different ways. In the second category, God draws attention to eight animals within his world, and he demonstrates that he's able to classify them and care for them, and nobody else can do that. And then in the final section, God uses two well-known creatures from ancient literary culture as illustrations. The first, behemoth, illustrates the way that Job should respond to God. Behemoth responds in trust to his maker. The second, Leviathan, stands in for God himself and shows that God can't be reduced or domesticated in any way. All of this, everything in chapters 38 through 41, all of it is meant to make one overall point. God is skilled at operating his world and his skills are a species of his wisdom. How does Job respond to all this? Well, Job's first response, I'll certainly vouch for his quick thinking on this one, was to shut his fat mouth. Look at chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Good call, but not the right one. When you're called on the carpet, it's wise to rest your case, but it's even wiser to recant your previous statement. It's not enough to just stop talking. Job needs to talk in the right way. And God gives him a second chance, and this one is much better. Take a look at chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Does this sound familiar to you? Job had a cognitive understanding about God, enough to respect him and to live righteously. My ears had heard of you. But after encountering God, he's able to bow in reverent submission to him as the one who wisely runs the world. But now my eyes have seen you. These are the two parts of the fear of the Lord that we just talked about a few minutes ago. In his state of suffering, Job has moved from just knowing about God to trusting God. In our suffering and in our pain, we need to talk. We need to ask tough questions. We need to be allowed to struggle and to vent and to cry out in agony. We're human beings. We're real people and we have deep-seated emotions that we find deep down in our bodies and they've got to be expressed. Those things need to happen. But we just can't stay there. That's not all that needs to happen. Maybe you've heard someone say, maybe you've even said this yourself, in the midst of suffering, when I get to heaven, God has got some explaining to do. I've got some questions for him. We feel that, but we can't stick with that. Because it cuts us off from the only solution to our greatest pain, God himself. What Job got wasn't an explanation, he got God. He got the assurance that God knows what he's doing and that he can be trusted. And when that settled in deep, it was exactly what Job needed. My, my ears had heard, but now my eyes have seen. I want you to listen to these wonderful words from a song that we sing on occasion here at Christ Community. Actually, I'd even encourage you to commit them to memory, plant them deeply in your bones so that these words come out when suffering sets in. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, and it is, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Job needed to meet God face to face, so to speak, in order to see his own inadequacy, but also God's adequacy. God is skilled at running his world. He is wise. He is skilled. Attribute number three, God is good. Follow along as I read the conclusion to the book. This is the epilogue, verses 7 through 17. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters, everyone who'd known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He was a wealthy dude. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Haput. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years, happily ever after. These verses raise a couple of issues for us. The first issue relates to what Pastor Jim called my startling insight last week. The man loves drama, okay? It's not that startling. I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm only going to tell you this story because he forced my hand. If he hadn't, I would be really hesitate to te- hesitant to tell it because you might get the impression that I think I'm smart. I don't think that I'm smart, okay? The only reason I discovered what I'm just about to tell you is very simply because I stink at Hebrew, I promise. Also, I hesitate to tell you this because a professor of mine years ago who taught me Hebrew said that Hebrew is like wearing underwear. You always have it on, but you never show it off. So I'm not showing off my Hebrew right now. I really stink at Hebrew, okay? Here's what happened. In that small class, we were required to come prepared each week with some in-depth analysis of a section of Job. And so one week we were studying chapter 42, verses 7 through 8, what I've just read. And that night we were slated to study these verses for three hours, two verses for three hours. And as always happens, I get called on first to provide my translation, which means I need to bumble through my Hebrew recitation, which I stink at, and then I need to give my English translation, and then I put on my cup because my professor is going to interrogate everything that I've just said. And one of the main issues was my translation of a particular preposition. Take a look at verses 7 and 8 for a moment. The NIV translates this preposition as about. Okay, you see it there two times. According to God, Job has spoken about him truthfully, and this is presented in contrast to Job's friends. Now, how does that square with you? How does that sit? You've been hearing this book taught over several weeks. Maybe you've been reading it yourself as we've been going. Hopefully, you've paid attention to some of what I've said over the last little while. So, do you get the impression that Job has spoken truthfully about God? No. Of course not. That Job is righteous in the sense that he isn't suffering because of his sin. But as we've seen, Job misrepresents God over and over again in this book. So how can God say this in the end? Well, he doesn't. That night, my translation for verse 7, and this applies equally to verse 8, went like this. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, talking to Eliphaz, because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, I'm guessing I could figure out what you're thinking at this point. You think this is really silly. Jim's big lead-up to Jameson preaching is this startling insight, and it's actually about a preposition. Yes, and that's exactly what my professor thought as well. 
he completely brushed it off because no commentator, and he himself has written a commentary on the book of Job, and no English translation goes this direction in chapter 42. So it wasn't that it was impossible, it's just that it was improbable. And so I pushed gently. If we translate this preposition about, then we have to find a way to exonerate Job's bad theology. Not a good plan. Alternatively, if we translate it to, then only Job's responses to God, what he actually speaks in response to God, need to be classified as truthful. And as we've seen, his response of shutting his yapper and repenting to God, those were truthful. He responded truthfully. Now, my professor has a look. And I was getting it, and I really wanted it to stop. But for whatever reason, he decided that this was worth looking into, and so we spent the next three hours of class in a full-scale analysis of this little presentation of mine. And it was really fun, and he was starting to lead the charge, and in the end, we figured out that we more or less should be translating it as two because the textual evidence leads in that direction, but more importantly, it makes sense of the whole book as a result. And so my professor held up his own commentary on the book of Job and said, I wish they'd let me do a revision, and just kind of dropped it on the table. Now, here's the funny thing about all of this. When you're learning language like Hebrew, you get a bunch of very basic sort of meanings to words that you kind of plug in, and those are the things you basically learn. And then you, over time, figure out there are other ways to say this or that or this or that. And the word to for this preposition was what I learned first year of Hebrew. I just slotted it in there. There was no thought to this. I just presented this idea because I really, really stink at Hebrew. Now, what difference does any of this make to reading the book of Job? Well, it means that what Job got right was his response to God. He learned through all of his suffering to cling to God rather than simple solutions, something like righteous, prosper, wicked, suffer. And that's what we're supposed to take away from the book of Job, that we need to cling to God. And the reason that he could cling to God in the midst of his suffering is because God is wise and because God is skilled and because he's good his goodness is demonstrated in his showing up for Job. His goodness is demonstrated in the fact that he leads Job to what he needs rather than what he wants. His goodness is demonstrated in that he receives Job's repentance. And his goodness is also demonstrated in the gracious gifts that he pours out on Job and his family. That's the second issue that the conclusion, conclusion raises for us. These final verses aren't meant to teach that we'll get it all back at the end of our suffering, whatever that would look like for everyone's unique situation. Instead, they demonstrate that God loves to give good gifts because he's good. And Job receives these gifts, not as a reward for his righteousness by any stretch, but as they actually are just gifts. I love this. Even in this, God flips general expectations. You would think by this point that Job, demonstrating his wickedness through his repentance, recognizing that he pridefully called God out, would receive punishment for his sin, operating according to the righteous, prosper, wicked, suffer deal. But instead, God flips it on its head, and God richly blesses him with gifts. Like Leviathan in chapter 41, there's no pinning God down. Our part is to trust him, and we can, because he's good, because he's skilled at running his world, and because he's wise. Now, earlier, 
I alluded to the struggles and sufferings that we experienced during the months that I was studying Job. These last two years have by far been the hardest that Rachel and I have ever faced. Most days of these past two years have been marked by significant uncertainty and by big financial question marks and by deep, deep exhaustion. And in all of those moments, I learned three things. The first thing I learned about myself is that I'm way more spiritually immature than I ever thought I was. And second, that I'm a really bad sufferer. Endurance doesn't come easy for any of us when it's strung out over months and months and months. But the last thing that I learned is the outline of this message deep, deep in my bones. One night, Rachel and I were talking about all of the things that we were facing, and we were trying to outline all of the emotions and get a sense of every facet of each of the issues. And even though I couldn't understand why we were suffering in this particular way, and even though I didn't understand the words that I said fully as they came out of my mouth, I said, Rachie, God is good. And God is wise. And we can trust him. The message of the book of Job had taken deep root in me. And that was so much more satisfying than if God had shown up and given us answers or if God had delivered us from our trying circumstances. And I don't say that because I'm spiritually mature. I just told you I'm spiritually immature. The truth is I was speaking better than I knew in the midst of our pain. The truth from God's word that I'd been studying became the means for meeting him in that moment. Which is why we steep ourselves deeply in his word. What you think about God is the most important thing about you, especially when you're suffering. God is wise and he's skilled in running his world and he's good and we can trust him. That's the message of Job. It's not a cliche. It's a truth deeply ingrained in the fabric of God's world and it leads us to him. And that's what we need when life hits the fan. I want to invite you to bow your head as we pray and close and prepare ourselves for communion at each of our campuses. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for wisely running your world. We don't understand all of the bits and pieces. We don't get explanations for all of those things. But we get you because you're gracious to us. And I pray that even as we prepare our hearts for communion, you draw us near to yourself. We'd find ourselves trusting you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.